0: And just like that, we were back yet again. I'm Josh Pate. Welcome in. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. We have had, quite literally, the best week or two run in the show's history to date. Now, it makes sense because we've only been around for about half a year, and this is the first full football season that we're riding into together uh, since I've been at 24-7. But man, the numbers you guys have been giving us are phenomenal. So thank you so much for that. I will say thank you until the end of time because you guys will deserve it until the end of time. So thank you so, so, so much. The numbers are outstanding. The five-star reviews, just let me give you a little little behind-the-scenes peek here because you wouldn't know this otherwise. I got a DM in our Slack channel from Tani, who is our podcast producer, chief producer, president producer, whatever. you. I don't even know what his name tag says, to be honest with you. But anyway, he informed me that after that little run that we had of five-star reviews, Because I challenged you to get us to 500, where you have since gone well over 600, by the way, in order to get the extra podcast added to the weekly rotation. Well, in doing so, you also topped any podcast in our network, even the CBS podcasts that have been around for like 100 years. So, I mean, really what I'm trying to say is they noticed you and me by default, but they really noticed you. So thank you so much for that. I got a request. I don't do this normally. I mean, I surely begged you for the five-star reviews. Don't get me wrong, but I don't normally beg you for a charity of any kind, but we got some folks who really, really need it. I'm going to read you an email, and this entire podcast, entire Late Kick Extra format is Q&A, but I wanted to read you a request email as we kick it off here. Uh, this is from our buddy Jim down in Louisiana. And I got this two days ago, and I'm going to put this in every show that we do for the rest of this week at least. He said, I totally agree with your emphasis being on college football during these times, but I do have to implore you to call attention to the almost total destruction we have here in Cameron Parish and the Lake Charles area by Hurricane Laura. We'll be out of power for at least a few more weeks. Hundreds of families here are homeless. Help is coming in from the country, but we need way more assistance. McNeese State is located here. We already lost our season due to COVID. Now much of our facilities are destroyed. LSU and Louisiana Lafayette have already sent trucks full of aid. I'm wishing that everyone would call upon college football programs to do the same. We're desperate here. Any help you can provide would be appreciated. Now listen, the reason I'm reading this to you is I know how generous you are. You've already done it for me. You've already done it for us. You've helped us out. I've sent these calls to action out in the past. We have got a ton of listeners in Louisiana. I love the folks in Louisiana. Those were the fans who I view as having put me on the map really last year. There was a wave of momentum from LSU fans, for example, that really helped Lake Kit get noticed. So the state of Louisiana has always and will always have a special place in my heart. And I'm encouraging you, whatever you can do, do it. Uh, do your research now. You understand it. not all charities are created equal, but do your research, search Charity Navigator, whatever service you like to use online, but give whatever you can. And I'm not just talking monetarily. Money, of course, goes a long way, but if you can donate time, if you can actually get down there, they need a lot of help. And I would also specifically call upon, because I know a lot of you guys listen, people associated with programs. If you haven't already found a way to donate some aid. I know it's a very tough time. I know a lot of people are in need of different kinds of aid right now, but if you can spare anything, if you can do what the folks at LSU and University of Louisiana have already done, I would humbly ask that you do so and help our friends out down on the Gulf Coast, down in Louisiana and inland. That was a brutal hurricane, borderline category five hurricane. So thank you, Jim, for reaching out. And I'm going to include that in shows the rest of the weekend. if I get more information on specific ways and specific methods to help out, then I will pass those on to you. With that, we'll get into the late kick extra portion of this podcast. And this is all Q and A. Late kick live airs three nights a week: Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday on the 24/7 Sports YouTube channel. Please subscribe there if you haven't already. We've also been setting easily setting records on subscription numbers on that channel. And we'll only continue to grow that. So please continue to do that. But I can't get to all your Q and A there. So this is the reservoir. This is where we dump them all off in. It sounds, that's not exactly the way I wanted to phrase that. I guess it's not a landfill. It's in a lot of people's opinions, the best product we put out from late kick all week because it's you that writes it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's how it goes. We're going to let Mac lead us off this week. And Mac says, I got a question that I've never really been able to get the answer to. But if Mac Brown wins at North Carolina, what does that mean about the state of Texas football? Could mean a few different things, Mac. I think the direction that I assume you are going here and a lot of other people would go is all right, if Mac Brown couldn't get it done at Texas as it ended up, but then he takes several years off and he's good enough to get it done in North Carolina with inferior resources, all due respect to Texas and not as much emotional investment in football, shall we say, as Texas, then maybe the problem was Texas all along and not back Brown. That could be true. I just think it's a lot more, um, I use the word nuanced too much recently. I think it's more involved than that. I think there are more layers to it than that. It's, it's, It's not the ocean. You know, you don't just see right on the surface. There's a lot below the surface at Texas. And what could have been the case was you could have had anything from too many cooks in the kitchen to burnout. I mean, we've seen that before. We've seen in various industries, by the way. You could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and burn out and take a few years off and then take an executive position somewhere else and just shine So it could be that that was all it was, but you are right. If that's what you're implying, you are also right in suggesting that if Mac Brown had to be, you know, run out of Texas or he walked out of Texas on his own accord, however you think that went down behind the scenes, if that had to happen and then he took a few years off and gets it done at North Carolina, then does that say something more about Mac Brown or Texas? Probably both, but here's what you have to ask about Texas. Does the exact same dynamic exist today that existed when Mac Brown left? Because that's when you'd have real problems. And to figure that out, we don't need to be looking at Mac Brown. We need to be looking at Tom Herman. And now I believe that since they've gotten rid of, or since uh, Mac Brown exited Texas, there have been changes there. Most notably, there is a fresh athletic director there and I have listened to him talk and I love you know he did a he did a feature exclusively with our guys and girl over at Horns 24/7 and um they pressed him on a lot of this stuff and he was very involved in the football operations aspect he understood and could recite everything you would ever want to know you got an involved athletic director there and you also have a situation where I think they get it like I think they get what the biggest pitfall for Texas was. And it wasn't Oklahoma, it was Texas. You know, it wasn't their rival, in other words. It wasn't anyone else in the sport. It was Texas. Texas was in Texas way. And so I think they've been in the process of trying to get out of their own way for a while, but it is a lot harder than it sounds because it's not like you got a flat tire and okay, I'm changing the flat tire and now my car is ready to go. Well, when the flat tire is metaphorical for a lot of folks who contribute seven plus figures per year to your program and they want influence in return and they want a seat at the decision making table in return, that's tough. That's tough to deal with sometimes. You got to deal very delicately with folks like that because you know the most precious commodity that anyone has is money. You got to have money and they got a lot of it at Texas, but there's a reason they got a lot of it. And in return, those who give that money, they want some influence. They don't want to be told, thank you for your check. Now, enjoy your suite on Saturdays and, you know, enjoy the access you may get to head coaches at functions and whatnot during the year. But as it relates to how we're going to run this program, we'll take care of it. Yeah, that doesn't always go over well. Matt is next up. What are your thoughts on stadium traditions in college football, like the paddle people at Oklahoma State? It's a good one, by the way. I would have forgotten about Oklahoma State. Or the Cowbells at Mississippi State. And what are some of your favorite college traditions? Uh, I like to limit this to the ones I've seen in person. So I have not been to an Oklahoma State game in person. Now I've seen it on TV, obviously, dozens of times. But as for the ones I've seen in person, the pregame Eagle flight at Auburn is really incredible. I got so spoiled by it that um, sometimes, you know, when we're on the field for pregame, what what I like to do or what I used to like to do when I was covering for news is I would go shoot warm-ups. another behind the scenes tidbit here. There are media exclusivity rights to footage during a game. You know, CBS, the company I now actually work for, ironically enough, they own the footage and they pay a lot for it. And I'm not mad at it. They own the footage of, you know, what happens while they're on the air. And so as a result, there are limits to what you can use and how much you can use, even if you are credentialed to be there and you work for Uh, You know, an affiliated news station, even of CBS, there are limits to what you can use. Well, those limits don't apply to pregame. So I can go out there and, if I'm at an Auburn game, for example, I can film Auburn wide receivers warming up or quarterbacks warming up an hour before kickoff and they're not on the air yet with CBS, the national broadcast. So I could use that footage until the end of time. And that's really important. Building a reservoir of B roll, as they call it, is very important. To pulling off successful news broadcasts. So anyway, I would do that and always have done that every game I go to. Well, problem is you, after they leave the field for warmups, go down into the tunnel and down into the media room and you're editing that footage normally, or you're sending it back to the station and you sometimes miss a lot of the pregame traditions. So at Auburn, you know, the last several times I've been there, if I'm being honest with you, I haven't even been able to see the Eagle flight, but I have seen it many times. And that's pretty incredible. The uh, the road team, the visiting fans, they always love to see that. So I would pick that one. I know this isn't necessarily a fan-involved tradition, but Chief Asiola at FSU, the Spear at midfield, that is incredible. Really incredible. I was down there when they played Clemson uh, 2015, I want to say. And... Um, You know, they let us walk out on the field a little ways, like towards the 50 when that happens, and that was incredible because that was the first time I had ever been to a game at Florida State in a media capacity. Uh, The cowbells, you mentioned those at Mississippi State. I've brought this up before, but it was a while back. We got a ton of new listeners, so I don't know how many of you heard it. This surprised some people when I said it the first time, but I meant it, and I'll say it again. Mississippi State is the loudest stadium I've ever been in which, as I said, shocked some people. I've been in all the big ones uh, down south. Now, I haven't been to the Big Ten stadiums, but irrelevant to where else I haven't been. I'm telling you, Mississippi State is the loudest stadium in the country when the artificial noisemakers are being used, cowbells. I told the story, and I'll briefly run through it again. When I went over there in 2014, that was when they secured the number one spot in the country for a little while. So it was Mullen's best team at Mississippi State. And I was there. I, I Actually, I think it was Auburn that was in town. It was a top five matchup, I want to say. It was crazy that year. Uh, they played. They went on to play Alabama. They went into Tuscaloosa as the number one team in the country. It was a crazy season. So anyway, I went in there and it was the first time I'd covered a game at Mississippi State. And I was walking around on the field pregame and I kept seeing as if I were walking around on a runway or a tarmac at an airport. Everyone had earbuds. They weren't in yet because it was three hours before kickoff, but everyone had some form of ear or hearing protection, you know, kind of draped around their neck. And these are all people who cover Mississippi State, so they're there every week. And I just thought it was weird, because that's not a scene that you normally see at any other game. Even the big stadiums, even Death Valley at LSU, 99% of people are not walking around with earplugs. So I said, that's, that's interesting. Hey, maybe that's a tradition around here. Maybe earplugs were a tradition. Yeah, they are for a very good reason. So we get closer to kickoff. That place is full capacity, full throat. And then they rung them. Then they started ringing those cowbells. I've never heard anything like it before or since painful, very painful to the ears. And so I didn't want to be the guy who muffed my ears with my hands, but eventually I had to do it. I mean, I don't want to lose my hearing And uh, it was a very, very charged environment that day. Game day was in town that day, and that's a rarity at Mississippi State. I've never heard anything like that. So I'd seen it on TV, but, I mean, on TV, you know, I mean, they got noise reducers and whatnot, so it just sounded like some ringing and clanging to me. No, man, it, it sounds like a jet engine is right next to both ears, and they've replaced the sound of an engine with just the sound of bells. That's about what it sounded like. A couple of other ones, uh, Dixieland Delight at Alabama. Unfortunately, in this um, politically correct climate that we find ourselves in, even though no one seems to approve of it, everyone complains about it, but yet it got this way somehow. They have tried to, uh, shall we say, restrictor plate Dixieland Delight, but it still gets through sometimes at Alabama. And I'm not talking about the song written by Alabama, the band. I'm talking about the song written by Alabama, the band, being played over the loudspeaker and some very creative, alternate lyrics being added in by the student body there. Speaking of very creative lyrics by the student body, I'm not going to get down to, into this road any further. I'm just going to say neck at LSU, period. And then I'm going to move on. And the last one that I wanted to list before I move on is the war hymn at Texas A&M, which if you've watched on TV is, is when pretty much everyone like 400,000 people start swaying back and forth to see that on the field is as if you're looking at one of those books that you used to look at when you were a kid with the optical illusions where you cross your eyes and you know an image pops off the page. Whatever that does to your eyes, the thing when a and fans sway back and forth, the same thing happens to your eyes. Your eyes aren't ready to see something like that. Your eyes aren't ready to watch something that grand in scale moving back and forth like that with perfect synchronicity, and it really messes with your vision. It's the craziest thing. Maybe that just happens to me. I don't know. I, I, I tend to think a lot of things happen just to me. Because sometimes I talk about this stuff and people look at me like I have four mouths. So I don't know. I'm just telling you. The question was to me and I answered it for me. Next up is Grayson. Do you think it's likely that JT Daniels had beaten out Jamie Newman for a spot and that's why Jamie Newman opted out at Georgia? It seems like weird timing unless he wasn't going to start. We've talked about this a lot this week. I understand the trepidation in just believing this was about COVID-19. That's the statement that Jamie Newman put out. If you missed this, by the way, Jamie Newman was penciled in, in any preview magazine you looked at as the starting quarterback for Georgia this year. He transferred from Wake Forest and then got a couple of weeks into fall camp and opted out. And he said it was because of COVID. Now we know that there is more to that story. And more to that story is JT Daniels, former five-star quarterback in his own right, out of USC, transferred in a few months ago, has not been medically cleared for contact yet. Now they believe he will be before the season starts at Georgia. Everybody who is anybody up there believes that will happen. But the reports, even up to the most recent scrimmage they had, from our folks over at Dogs Twenty Four Seven, and I've heard this too, was Jamie Newman was considered the first team quarterback. That doesn't mean he was going to start, but it does mean that he was at the very least the leader in the clubhouse. I can assure you, if Georgia had a game that day, Jamie Newman was your starting quarterback. Now he would have had to be. Daniels was not cleared for contact, but that's been the feeling there. Now here's the other thing. The other thing could be and there could be several things in play in reality, but Jamie Newman is a guy who has NFL potential. Jamie Newman is a guy who sees himself as a draft pick. And he probably will be. Here's the problem. The problem is you may look at it as a Georgia fan or I just may look at it as, you know, just a neutral observer and I may say, "Okay, he's a guy who probably is going to play on Sunday. You know, he'd probably be drafted, but he's a guy who stands to immensely increase his draft stock and Georgia will be the perfect opportunity for that. He'll be able to play on a big stage." Uh, behind probably a better offensive line than he had at Wake Forest. He'll have better weapons. And so this is his opportunity to vault himself as high as he possibly could vault in NFL draft stock terms. That's true. But here's what else could be true. What else could be true is JT Daniels was probably giving him some very good competition in practice. And people got in his ear and said, It's great to compete, but if you don't win this job, do you understand what that does to your draft stock? Do you understand what it does for you trying to play in the NFL when those folks who were responsible for grading and scouting and drafting, you look and say, well, we don't have anything to look at. He got beat out in college. Well, we want him to play at one of 32 professional football organizations and he can't start in college. What, what are we talking about here? What are we wasting our time for? I don't doubt that that could have crept into his decision-making. Now, all we officially had to go on is what he said, but Grayson, you asked, had he been beaten out. No, unequivocally, no. I'm telling you, he had not been beaten out. That doesn't mean, though, that he didn't look at the competition and say, I can't guarantee that I'm going to have this job all season long, so maybe it's best for me to opt out. I'll rest on the laurels of the work I've already put on tape. Now, Like you, I don't know if that was the wisest decision, but it's not my decision. But no, a lot of people have just said, oh, he got beat out. No, he didn't get beat out. Now, maybe mentally, he get, if you want to phrase it as mentally, he got beat out. And so he tapped out. Maybe that's the case. I don't know that to be true. Maybe that's the case. But he had not been told by Kirby Smart, all right, you're running with the twos now. You know, that had not happened. So anyone who tells you it had, they don't know what they're talking about. Michael is next up. Something to consider from the Penn State point of view. In the state of Pennsylvania, youth football is playing. Junior high is playing. High school is playing. Temple, Villanova, Pitt all playing and the Eagles and Steelers are playing. Literally every form of football except Penn State is playing. How in the world does this happen? Michael, you just summarized the entire problem that everyone is kind of started to point out now. You could have been totally dialed out all summer long. You could have been out on a lake. You could have been stranded in the middle of the Pacific Ocean all summer. And you could have just been rescued and brought back to shore. And have you seen that movie, by the way, Adrift? That's on Netflix. It's interesting. Also a true story. Anyway, I mentioned that because I said stranded in the Pacific. So anyway, you could have been like folks in the movie Adrift, except the guy who, I don't want to spoil it for you, but you could have just arrived back in state college today and you don't even know what COVID is. And so people told you what COVID is. And now you're looking around and you're saying, oh, I guess we're not going to have football, right? And then people say, oh, no, 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 no. They're actually going to play in the SEC and the Big 12 and the ACC and middle school and college and Pee Wee and the NFL and everywhere else in the state they're going to play. Uh, but Penn State can't play. And you would say, what happened? Did they have an outbreak at Penn State? No, they didn't. Well, what happened then? I mean, are we just, how, how did we get abducted by an alien? I mean, what, what's happened here? No, no, you're just not going to play because the Big Ten's not going to play. The presidents have allegedly voted, and so we're just not going to play. Michael, you could have arrived today, and you could see the problem in that, right? You don't even need to know the name of the commissioner. You don't need to know the name of your university president. You don't need to know anything more than what you just told me in this question statement that you issued to know there's more at play here than just the safety and well-being of players. That is obvious. Anyone who argues with that is void of any reason or logic-based ability to make a conclusion. Because that's not all that's in play. If it was, then you wouldn't have, like Michael said, every other level of football happening. So either you are of one of two mentalities here you are either of, we're the ones that are playing it by the book, and everyone else is being reckless and endangering the lives of kids, which is ludicrous, or you're of the opinion that the threshold, the non zero risk threshold that is acceptable to be in in order to play football, has been met. And yet we're the ones dragging our feet for whatever reason. Now, I put the word whatever in that sentence. It's in a blank. It's written in pencil. You can turn that pencil over and you can erase the word whatever. And you can fill that blank in with whatever word you want to. Most of you would put political in there. It's been, to be honest with you, a very big challenge for me. Because I notoriously avoid placing politics of any kind in the show. And the reason it's been hard is because it is glaringly obvious that politics are in play here. And so I've tried to handle this as best and as delicately as I can, but it has been a struggle because it's obvious to anyone that has been paying attention and confirmed since then behind the scenes by multiple people. It's to me, at least, it's obvious that politics are in play here. So Michael, I understand your frustration. Hopefully we arrive at some kind of acceptable conclusion here soon. Uh, Cassie kind of asked a similar question, but it's along the lines of the future. Do you think that if the Big Ten doesn't play this fall, that Ohio State would seriously consider leaving? And if so, maybe merge with another conference or go independent? Cassie, I don't. I don't, but at the same time, I would never say never. I just have learned that football, while it's really big to us, I mean, it's everything to us. That's what this entire show is based on. It's not everything to the people in positions to make those decisions. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. Although in this situation, I would certainly say it hasn't helped. But when you're talking about removing affiliation and detaching yourself from being affiliated with a conference that you've been in since, I want to say, the early 1900s for Ohio State, it would take a lot. Now, this is a lot. This is, if it doesn't get rectified. It is a lot. But the emotion you have in asking this question, the emotion that I have in talking about it, the people who would be making these decisions remove totally from the equation. And they're talking dollars and cents, and they are absolutely talking politics, and they're talking about a decision that uh, is far bigger than just the status of a football season. So for that reason, no, I don't believe so. Now, could I see Ohio State thriving as an independent? Absolutely. Ohio State would thrive no matter where they went. Make no mistake. I'm a believer that the Big Ten needs Ohio State far more than Ohio State needs the Big Ten. Ohio State could probably snap their fingers and land in the SEC tomorrow if they wanted to. I don't think it would happen uh, for many reasons, but Ohio State would be fine regardless of the route they went. But having said that, I don't think they're going to go that route. Andrew up next. Josh, what are your thoughts on the 40 plus players who were unable to scrimmage for Tennessee this weekend because of COVID or contact tracing I don't doubt the safety of the facilities. It seems like a terrible blow, though, for a team not being able to scrimmage while only being a few weeks away from game one against South Carolina. Andrew, I don't think it's as big a blow as it seems, only because this is an atypical uh, practice slash preseason slash fall camp cycle. Think about what you said there at the very end. They're a few weeks away from game one, not a few days, and that's a very, very important line of demarcation here, if this were just a normal preseason setting where they were giving you right at one month to lead up to the first game and you had to miss a scrimmage and you had 40 players on the shelf, well, it would be a detrimental blow. I mean, it would be terrible. But that's not what the case is. The case is that today I'm recording this on the morning of September 8th, I want to say. September 8th. Yes. So their first game is September 26th. So we're still three weeks, a little under three weeks away, and they've been practicing for a while. So the point is, they structured it for this very reason. The entire preseason format was structured with this in mind. It was structured to where someone like Auburn could take a few days off, or Tennessee could miss a scrimmage, and you could send 60 kids if you needed to into quarantine, and you'd still be good to go. So I think Tennessee will still be good to go. Here's the question and kind of the idea that a lot of people are floating out in football circles. Now, obviously no one's ever been through this before. And so it's kind of left open-ended when it's talked about, but there are some coaches who are curious as to whether this may be a benefit down the road, since this is obviously a year where no one is losing their eligibility. No one's really worried about redshirting anyone this year. So a lot of people understand that, number one, because we don't have to follow the red shirt guidelines this year, we can play kids as many games as we want to, and also because there is a threat even in the season of you losing some players to COVID, we need to have young players ready anyway. Some coaches are looking around and saying, wait, if I, if I have one of these blows dealt to me in early portions of camp, and early portions of practice, and I, quote unquote, am forced to get young kids a lot of reps because they're having to fill spots of guys who are out, maybe that serves me well down the road. Because like, like you said, and like we just said, we're not on a truncated timetable here. Like We still have time. Our starters are still going to be able to come back, and you know they're still going to get reps in. But in the meantime, we're getting some guys extra reps that we know we're going to use this year anyway. And what I'm saying is, you could be in week seven for all we know. And Tennessee could be overachieving relative to expectation. And a lot of their young guys may be overperforming relative to expectation. And you may look around, like maybe their special teams units are shining more than you would expect. And there are a lot of young guys on those units. And you may look around and say, well, you know what? I had uh, Jeremy Pruitt tell me before the game, you're watching the national broadcast, we had Jeremy Pruitt tell us before the game, it turns out that it was a blessing in disguise to be able to get a lot of guys reps when we had so many on the shelf in week uh, two or week three of fall camp. Because those are the guys that are now contributing, whereas previously, if we were in a normal schedule, maybe we wouldn't, maybe we wouldn't be able to count on them as much as we are. So that's something, one thing that people are talking about behind the scenes. Again, no one really knows. No one has any clue how this is going to go. That's kind of the optimistic outlook on it, though. Brock is next. I have heard good things out of Columbia, specifically on offensive identity at South Carolina. And I just want to know, have you learned anything out of their camp? Great show. I got into it last year when I heard you talking about South Carolina. Well, thank you, Brock. So a few things that I've taken away. Quarterback battle's fascinating here. You got Colin Hill and Ryan Helensky. And this is another example in a million of why I don't really buy preview magazines anymore. I, I like them. Now, I, let, me re, let me backtrack. I buy them, but it's a lot more out of tradition at this point than it is out of leaning on them for information. Any preview magazine you bought is telling you Ryan Holinsky is a starting quarterback here. They were written several months ago. It's not their fault. I mean, they have a deadline. They have to put a name down. And sure enough, Ryan Halinsky is probably the name that a lot of people expected. But Colin Hill is pushing him. And right now it's neck and neck. And you could find people who firmly believe Colin Hill is going to win this. And you could find people who firmly believe Ryan Halinsky is going to win this. But I'll tell you where I'm looking. Okay. I mean, quarterback going to work its way out one way or the other. Rico Powers. And uh, I believe his name is Jacari Caldwell. A couple of young receivers that are names I keep hearing. And that's good. That's good. Because remember, Ortrey Smith opted out this year. And that was a receiver that you would count on at South Carolina. He opted out this year. You know, Marshawn Lloyd is lost for the season, who is going to be, I think, their star tailback. So they've lost some weapons on offense. And they badly need playmakers. Badly. They just don't have enough of them. And to compound matters new offensive coordinator, installing a new offensive system. And it's a situation where you've got to hear names like that. That's out of, out of necessity. You've got to be hearing names emerging at wide receiver, emerging at running back. And there have been some names. I just listed a couple of them. I just don't know how far it takes them. I don't know how much it means. I, don't, I can't find anyone who could make any reasonable conclusion about what to expect from South Carolina against Tennessee. And for that matter... The previous question leads me to believe Tennessee is going to be a real wild card in week one, too. So for many reasons, probably the most interesting, Now, it may be the most ugly, too, but probably one of the most interesting games to watch in the country, it may be in Columbia, South Carolina in week one. It may be Tennessee versus South Carolina. John is next up. This is a good question. We're going to talk about this, actually, on Lake Kick later tonight, if you're listening on Tuesday. I was playing scenarios with my friends this weekend, and this popped into my head. Army looked very good Saturday, albeit against Middle Tennessee, but they've been doing the same things on both sides of the ball for years, and the tradition and transition looked seamless. Without the presence of the Big Ten and Pac-12, could you see them sneaking into the playoff? Or if not them, any of the American teams? Yes. Yes, I could. I've been outspoken on this issue before. This is not a normal year. I think things could change this year. So, John, I'll just tell you, watch Late Kick Live tonight, the Tuesday night show, if you're listening after today, because we're going to talk about this in longer detail. Next up is I Love Bryce Young. That's the name of the poster. Let's see which direction they choose to go. Anyone's guess here. Oh, it's it's about Alabama. Who do you project to start opposite Dylan Moses at inside linebacker for Alabama? This answer is easy. This is going to be Christian Harris. Christian Harris is going to be one of the breakout players in college football this year. I look at a couple of inside backers in the SEC. If you want to look at Georgia, Nicobe Dean is a name that a lot of you know hardcore fans already know, and hardcore fans already know Christian Harris. He started last year for Alabama, but he was pressed into starting duty as a true freshman because Dylan Moses and Josh McMillan were both lost for the season, if you'll recall. Well, now he's a guy that they are going to choose to start there alongside Dylan Moses, in my humble opinion. And I think he is a guy who has immense upside. And he's a guy who I think will shine this year for them. Max is next. I know the Pac-12 isn't playing this fall, but what steps do you think Oregon needs to take to get to the next level? If they can repeat or sustain the 2019 season, which recruiting suggests they can, I see them approaching the Oklahoma level of being a consistent playoff contender. Max, I don't disagree with you but I think you may be short-selling them a little bit. I understand what you mean in the Oklahoma comparison, but maybe a little bit different comparison here because they're building it with defense in mind too at Oregon. And so my simple answer on what they need to do is they need to remain on the same trajectory. That They don't need to change really anything. I think this year one of the biggest questions about them was going to be quarterback. But they've got that question tentatively answered for the future with Ty Thompson being committed. He's a high four star guy out of Arizona, and he's a guy who a lot of people think really highly of, obviously, us included at 24 7. But I mean, they have long since established a brand, and that brand still matters, and it probably carries as much weight today as it ever has. Uh, the identity has already been established there and was in the process of continuing to be established, like I said, with your quarterback of the future committed, that just, it gives me such an added level of comfort and it gives your recruiting an added level of stability. It almost feels like when you have the quarterback, it is the foundation on which you're building the rest of the class. And that's what it feels like to me that Mario Cristobal is doing at Oregon. Here is the big unknown. And I think you know what I'm talking about and the road I'm going down. What factors outside your control may limit you? And I'm talking about Pac-12 factors. I'm talking about, obviously, already the conference falling further and further behind the rest of the pack before COVID, now missing a season as it seems will happen. Now, I know there's been some positive traction as of late, but no one thinks that the Pac-12 is going to play a fall season, obviously. And a spring season, it lacks a whole lot of credibility. Let me just put it like that. And so, what kind of damage is being done that Oregon can do nothing about? And the follow up to that is if damage is done to the profile of your program, how hard is it to maintain elite coaches like a Mario Cristobal, for example? I mean, it, like I said, it wouldn't be Oregon's fault. But if they are attached to a loser, if they are attached to a conference that becomes a loser and a losing proposition to be affiliated with, and you maintain that affiliation, It's going to be hard to maintain that affiliation and also maintain top-level personnel because you just can't compete with the other big boys. can't do it. You don't offer a competitive enough opportunity as the other big boys would. So those are the factors that are in play when it comes to the future of Oregon. Burt is next up. Now, this is going to be a painful question, but we're just going to rip off the Band-Aid together. All right, the first five words here are going to let you know how tough and dicey this could get. I am an Arkansas fan. Okay, that's how Burt starts it off. So prepare yourself accordingly. Most of us are in hiding right now. Question, do you think Arkansas may be a little better than giving credit for? Sam Pittman has picked up some nice transfers. I follow every practice. They're looking pretty good. Burt, this is a very strange answer, or the way that I'm going to answer this. Because I think the answer may be yes. I think some people expect Arkansas to be one of the worst teams of all time. Well, that's not the case. Arkansas is not going to be a good team this year. Arkansas uh, has a win total of like one or one and a half for a reason. But I want you to think about how hard it would be to gauge this. Arkansas could be well above expectation and go two and eight. Arkansas could be the number 34 team in the country. Let's say, Bert, that I were able to snap my fingers and you and I could just know absolute truth about every team. And let's say I snap my fingers and the absolute truth about Arkansas is they are going to be the number 34 team in America. Just wire to wire. They're going to be consistently the number 34 team in America. These are our universally true power ratings. They were delivered to us from on high. Arkansas is the 34th best team in the country. I'm going to read you their schedule. Georgia, they're better than 34. Auburn, they're better than 34. a and they're better than 34. Tennessee, they're better than 34. Florida, LSU, they're both better than 34. Alabama, they're better than 34. I just read you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of their 10 opponents. So if they are the number 34 team in the country even, which is not bad at all, they would still, if everyone just played to expectation, they would be three and seven right off the bat. Then you would throw in games against Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Missouri. And some of those games are obviously toss-up kind of games if you're ranked 34th in the country. So you could be the number 34 team in the country if you're Arkansas this year and go 2-8. and eight. Just if everyone played to form, you would go 2-8. and eight. So my reason for stating that is Arkansas could be way better than people think they are this year. And a lot of folks would have no clue. Because a lot of folks just pay attention to record. And I'm telling you, Arkansas could be a top 35 team this year and go 2-8. And And justifiably do it. Like, that wouldn't be underachievement. Justifiably go 2-8. That's the historic nature of how hard this schedule is. So, Bert, hang in there, man. Hang in there. Because I do believe they put together a good staff. I do believe it's a very underrated staff. And listen, I do believe, like you, they're probably better than a lot of people are power rating them. I just don't know that anyone's going to realize it. Joe is up next. What would it take for Notre Dame to beat Clemson at home? Is it reasonable or is the gap so large that the only hope is for Clemson playmakers to be out due to something like contact tracing? Joe, I would say forget COVID. To anyone, forget COVID. And that's going to exist all year. And yes, it's going to be a factor. And it could very well be a factor. I mean, Clemson could have 20 players on the shelf when you play them for all I know. But no one can predict it, obviously. So let's just remove that from the equation. Let me be clear here. Notre Dame's capable of beating Clemson just straight up. They're capable of beating them. Now, a couple of things right off the bat that I think it would take is probably plus one or better in the turnover margin. And you would probably need a decided win on special teams, hidden yardage. You would probably need to decisively win that aspect of the football game. But if that were the case, this is possible, man. I mean, It's not like Clemson's going to roll in there and be favored by three and a half touchdowns. Uh, That's not the gap that exists between these teams. Notre Dame's a very good team. The problem that people have buying into the upset potential is the same roadblock that I have. You're not dynamic enough at quarterback. If you're dynamic enough at quarterback, then all of a sudden it's like it's, well, you got a puncher's chance, so to speak. Well, Notre Dame is kind of the inverse. Notre Dame is good at quarterback, and that's what they are. They're good. If you believe in rating on a scale of bad, poor, average, good, great, elite. You know, Notre Dame is about two notches or three notches below at quarterback what a Trevor Lawrence is, for example. But Trevor Lawrence has had off games before, normally not in the big ones, admittedly, but he's had some bad games before or some off games at least. And I'll tell you this too. I was listening to Anna Hickey do a kind of a rundown of how they feel about their team up there at Clemson. They have questions. They just know that they're going to have time to answer them. But I mean if they had to play right off the if they had to play Arkansas schedule for example there'd be a lot more trepidation make no mistake in the voices of Clemson fan too cuz uh Clemson fan looks around and we, of course every every position has a talented replacement but I mean they got some guys who got to prove it on their defensive front they got some slots to fill at wide receiver they got some talented ones but they got some slots to fill there uh, they're really dynamic. They're really good at running back. So I don't think there are many slots to fill there. But listen, there are some places that maybe or maybe not panning out for Clemson could impact that game in. But everything's got to go right for Notre Dame. Like you got to take care of your business and then hope for a couple of slip ups there. Listen, crazier things have happened. That's all I'm saying. I don't view this as, you know, some uh, Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson special if Notre Dame's able to knock Clemson off. Problem's probably that you have to do it twice. And that's, that's where it gets a little bit more dicey. Next up is Jared. I got into a spat with my roommate earlier today. We're all Georgia fans. One of them kept saying J.T. Daniels is Jake Fromm 2.0. What do you think of that charge? Well, Jared, what if he is? What if he is Jake Fromm 2.0? Since when did this become pejorative in context? Let me let me do a little exercise with you, okay? For everyone who loves to crap on the name of Jake Fromm. If I could change just one thing about history that had nothing to do with Jake Fromm, but it would change everyone's perception of Jake Fromm, would you believe that? Because it's right. I'm, I'm right on this. If I could go back to 2017, Jake Fromm is a freshman this year, I believe. And uh, they're playing Alabama in the national championship game. Let me reiterate. Let me, re- let me restate that for those in the back. Jake Fromm, as a true freshman quarterback, has Georgia in the national title game. Now I can already hear some of you in the back saying, well, oh, yeah, that was because of defense, though. Okay, right. You can be terrible at quarterback, but defense is getting you to a national title. Okay, yeah. L-l-l- there's just a list a mile long of teams that have bad quarterbacks who have been in national title games. Absolutely. So, anyway, for the serious adults in the room, yes, there they are the Georgia Bulldogs and Jake Fromm's freshman year. They're in a national title game. Overtime of that title game, by the way. I'm going to change one thing. And the one thing I'm going to change is the Tua Tonga-Vailoa pass to Devontae Smith, second and 26, it's dropped. They go to third and 26. They pick up half the yardage necessary. They set up a fourth down field goal try, which of course Alabama misses because they are Alabama. And Georgia wins the national title. Jake Fromm didn't do a thing. Like Jake Fromm's performance was already solidified in that game and in that season. But if I just change that one thing in history, that had nothing to do with Jake Fromm. I didn't change a thing about Jake Fromm. Jake Fromm would all of a sudden be described as a national championship quarterback and everyone would remember him differently. And that is the reason I don't really take those kinds of things seriously. Everyone refers to Jake Fromm as, oh, he was average at best. He was an underachiever. Whatever, man. I mean, Jake Fromm was a pretty good quarterback. Now, he wasn't Matthew Stafford. You know, he he wasn't a guy who was a top 10 lock I understand that. Not everyone is. I don't know if you've noticed, very few are. But Jake Fromm was not a bad player there, and I'm not his cousin or his brother, even though it probably sounds like it over the last 2 minutes. But I say all that to say this. If JT Daniels is Jake Fromm, you know what he's going to be good enough to do? Win a whole lot of football games at Georgia. Now we ask, now what if he's a little bit better than Jake Fromm? Well, in 2017 that probably would have been a national title, or maybe just being as good as Jake Fromm and Uh, being able to take care of business on second 26 and get your safety over there in time. Maybe that was good enough. But if I were to just change that one thing about history, no one would even be talking about what Jake Fromm 2.0 means. No one would be talking about that. So because of that, Jared, I would say I think it's reasonable to expect at least Jake Fromm potential from JT Daniels. Get him healthy. You know, that's one thing we haven't been able to see is we didn't see him in the spring game, obviously, and we didn't see any, hardly any footage of him from fall camp. So we don't really know how he's moving. And that's one of the remains to be seen things about Georgia and really the SEC in general right now. All right, right quick here. We're about to go into a couple of questions combined and they are about LSU and specifically remove the filter and they just want my honest, straightforward, raw opinion about LSU. So you know what? I'm going to give you my raw, straightforward, honest opinion about the future, both short-term and long-term, of LSU. We'll do that right after the break. All right, so we're back here, and I'm going to combine three questions into one because they were essentially the same thing. So West Texas LSU fan, Lula Bear and Ray Horton. Here's kind of the summary of the questions they asked. West Texas kind of asked, Barton and Bud gave their take on LSU this season. Do you think there's a shot at them contending in the SEC West? And then Lula Bear and Ray asked, just for my dead honest opinion on LSU, near future, long-term future, everything from recruiting to program buy-in to coaching hires and everything in between. So it'd be hard for me to envision them contending in the SEC West this year. I think there is a big gap in this year's teams between them and Alabama. I think Texas A&M is going to put a better product week one on the field than LSU is. I think they'll be very competitive with Auburn. So it'd be very hard for me to see them compete for the SEC West this year. As for the future, this is where there is a point of serious contention with a lot of people. As I've spoken about, a lot of people believe 2019 was kind of a one-year wonder. I believe that there were a lot of things injected into the program before last year, really, that obviously went a long way in producing the result they had last year, but would set you up for long-term success. Now, here's the thing you have to continue doing an inventory of your program. The things I'm talking about is, number one, they got the right athletic director in there and Scott Woodward. Number two, they really beefed up their support staff. They've enhanced facilities. And some of this was already in the works, but they've expedited the process. They filtered out, and I can't state this in strong enough terms, filtered out some of the elements that didn't need to be around the program. And whereas maybe previously... We had kind of one toe in the water and then one was just kind of twirling the water around a little bit. Well, now both toes are in the water, both feet are in the water. And if you're not on board with that, then you're out. We got to have a freight train and every car has got to be moving the same direction, same speed, because we're trying to compete with one in Tuscaloosa that's been doing the same and it had a head start on us. So they got a generational group of talent in there last year and a generational combination of coaching in there last year that kind of expedited the process. But That doesn't mean that when that combination left, that the DNA they injected left too. If they injected the proper DNA, it's still there. Now they could go six and four this year and that still be true. Because they've been dealt a set of cards this year that hardly anyone could deal with. I mean, what if Nick Saban had 34 players leave his team from last year? What if he had that? You know, so even the I mentioned that because the best in the country would be hard-pressed to overcome what Ed Orgeron is going to deal with this year. So a lot of people are going to draw conclusions this year if the team, if the team and the record go sideways that 2019, well, there is our confirmation it was indeed a one-year mirage. Not necessarily. Recruiting? They just had a dynamite weekend this past weekend. They're not going to fall off. If anything, they're going to sell underachievement this year as reason to recruits to come in. You can play early. We've proven we can develop you and send you to the league. We just sent how many? 14 or 15 to the league. We're going to send a couple more that opted out this year. Uh, You can see that you can win championships here. Here's the ring. We just won one. So I mean, there's no downside. It's all upside. Uh, They can sell LSU in abundance right now on the recruiting trail. And I think they're going to finish with a top five class, easily top five because of that. If not challenge for the number one class. It just all comes down to managing a program. You know, there's a, tra- there's a kind of a school of thought out there that Ed Orgeron is a good in-season guy. Like, he's a good game day guy. He's a good guy to lead a football team. But a football program and a football team are two different things. A football program is an organization. It is like a company. Is your head coach properly equipped to lead that? That's not the way it used to be, but it is today you got a whole lot of garbage on your plate that's not football-related that you have to deal with. It's administrative in nature, and it's just it's why you have to be more of a CEO type than uh, you know chalk under the fingernails, X's nose type, just spend all day watching film. That is not the role of a head coach in 2020 college football. you got a million things that have nothing to do with the football field that you have to deal with. If Ed Orgeron has that guy, and if he has surrounded himself with the right people, then you'll see it. I think you'll even see it this year, even if the record is subpar. You'll see it. Next up, Rosie had a good question. You, Chris Pate, wake up and are 18 years old. You are ranked the nation's number one long snapper. Who do you sign with and why? Rosie, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to get kind of creative here because I only have one career and it's mine. And I have a precious commodity. Every team needs it. A quality long snapper. If you don't believe me, I hope you watch the central arkansas game from the other night so here's what i would do i would announce my plans ahead of time and those who don't like it can get out of the process entirely but i am announcing as chris pate the 18 year old number one long snapper in the country i am announcing that i plan on playing four years at four different universities i'm going to see the world or the country at least i'm going to see the world of college football and i'm going to transfer after every year. I'm going to start at Alabama because I want to be able to say 50 years from now, I played for Nick Saban, I played for the best in America, and I can win a national championship there. Then I'm going to transfer to Iowa State because I have a weird fascination with Iowa State. Even at 18 years old, even as Chris Pate, I have a fascination with Iowa State. So I'm going up there to check off my Iowa State bucket list wish of playing for the Cyclones. Then I'm headed to the Big Ten, and I'm going to Ohio State because I want to be able to say that I played for, in my age, what was the best program in the Big Ten. Now, who knows 50 years from now what's happening up there. Maybe they haven't even started playing football again, for all we know. But let's be positive here. And then I'm going to get really creative in my fourth year. I'm going to go to Hawaii, stub my toe getting off the plane, take a redshirt year, and then play my redshirt senior year in Hawaii. So I bought myself two years on the island, and then I'm probably going to take my talents to the NFL at that point. But what a career I will have had at that point. I'm going Bama, Iowa State, Ohio State, Hawaii, off year, Hawaii. And that's how I'm going to handle my career as a long snapper. Thank you for the opportunity, Rosie. Respect my decision. Next up is GW Colonial. And he said, do you think Nebraska can return to winning conference titles and national titles under Scott Frost? And my answer is no. But that sounds very heartless, so allow me to get more in-depth here. There was a plural on this, titles, and no, I just don't believe it is reasonable. For Scott Frost, even if he's the best head coach in America, I just don't believe that in the modern day, the structure of college football is built to allow a perennial contender to exist at Nebraska. Now, I'd love to be wrong on that. Believe me, I have nothing against Nebraska. I love Nebraska. So I'd love to be wrong there, but I got to have someone present me some pretty solid counterpoints to change my mind on that. However, could there be one of those magical runs come together? Well, of course there could. Absolutely, there could. I just think there are some things out of the control of Nebraska that have to take place. And here's what I mean. I don't think Ohio State could be operating at the level they currently are and you win a conference title there, a national title. I just don't believe that that would happen. But here's what could happen. Ohio State could have a down year. And it could coincide with maybe Penn State and or Michigan, like whoever else would be in the way. they could have you know just subpar a year at quarterback in the league, and you end up having a senior quarterback, and it just you have one of those years come together. but then you start making it plural, and they're just going to run off a string that I find hard to believe. I just don't know how I could envision that happening, but again, would love to be wrong would love to be wrong now, I will say this. The recruiting dynamic obviously is one that works against Nebraska, but you know, there's some data out there that shows you state lines don't matter as much as they used to. You know, it used to mean something if you could pull a kid out of another state. Well, now everyone does it every recruiting cycle. So, maybe you know, maybe Nebraska figures out a way to start a really solid pipeline annually out of a couple of areas like maybe the Carolinas and North Georgia or maybe Florida or maybe East Texas like maybe they just really go hardcore and Scott Frost loads his staff up and his support staff with guys who specialize in those geographic regions and they just kind of thwart conventional wisdom in what you're supposed to be able to do in recruiting at Nebraska maybe that happens and if that were to happen then that's a game changer but it really really has to happen. It can't just be a few exceptions to the rule. It has to be the rule. Next up is Gators 15. Why do you think the Pac-12 doesn't seem to be getting used in a political sense like the Big Ten? Because they're not available to be used, because they haven't politicized it. That's why. The Pac-12 don't care if you agree with their decision or not. They've been crystal clear from day one. They've been straightforward with what they're going to do, what they're not going to do, why they're not going to do it, and that's it. Period. Like that's the end of the sentence. And when things changed, then all of a sudden you heard Larry Scott come forward and say, Hey, it looks like things may be changing. Okay. Here's what we're talking about now. Uh, here's the process. Here's what it'll take, but they're not available to be used. Uh, the big 10 listen, part of the reason they're being used politically is because they volunteered to be used politically. Uh, maybe some politicians in the big 10 are using that big 10 logo and politicizing it. Maybe they're doing that. Maybe there's internal politicization, which has always been one of the hardest words to say in the English language, right behind asterisk, which a lot of people think will be attributed to this season. And I'm not willing to go along with that, but Gators 15, I think that's the simple answer. Sebastian. Oh boy. He's wrapping us up with a good one here. Sebastian says, what are some of your favorite restaurants and college towns you go to? All right. I've got a few that I wrote down. But I want to preface this by saying I live a very nomadic lifestyle during the season. So what I like to do is I like to travel day of game. Normally, I'm covering the game, okay? I'm not going in town for the weekend. I'm not going as a fan. I'm going to work, (laughs) quote, unquote. And so I leave day of game. If I'm flying in, I like to fly in morning of game. And I'll get there. And, uh, you know, I, I eat at the stadium. I eat in the press box and stuff. And so afterwards, I'm there two hours minimum after game. And I like to travel out same night. I like to get in and get out, in other words. And so it doesn't leave a lot of time for me to experience the culinary scene, which is my fault. But there are some places, the ones that I've covered more regularly, obviously I've spent more time in these towns. So I gave you one in each of the three towns that I've spent the most time in. Archibald's in Northport, which is... Adjacent to Tuscaloosa. Uh, those are the best ribs in the Tuscaloosa, Northport, kind of University of Alabama scene. Uh, outsiders, of course, attribute Dreamland to Tuscaloosa. I'm not some snob. I, I don't hate on Dreamland. I mean, that place is really good too. But Archibald's from my money. Best ribs there. Uh, best ribs I've ever had, by the way, not just in Tuscaloosa or Northport. Pulaski Heights is a place up in Athens that's really good, also a barbecue joint. And then there's a place in Auburn. That's called Niffers. And they've got also another restaurant, at least one more, that's over in Opelika, which is a twin city to Auburn. Now, I prefer the Opelika establishment, and I'm gonna tell you exactly why. It has an open deck there in downtown Opelika, which is adjacent to a major rail line. And I love trains. So you can sit outside and you can eat on that deck, and then you can watch the trains go by. And I'm gonna be perfectly honest with you. I mean, consuming copious amounts of beef. While watching freight trains go by all afternoon, outside of owning your private island in the Bahamas or the Caribbean, I would ask, you know, like Ray's father in Field of Dreams, is this heaven? And then a waitress walks up to you and says, no, it's Opelika. Are you ready to place your order? But those are my three favorites. And there are a lot of other ones. There's some places I've been to I flat out don't remember the names of, which is also my fault. So I'll need to do like Andy Staples. I need to start recording my food, I need to start recording my culinary experiences more often. Cause I've had some good ones now. I've had some really good ones. And I do not have a sophisticated, refined palate. I'll eat anything. I will eat anything and not apologize for it. So that is Late Kick Extra for today. Remember, if you're listening on Tuesday, we've got an episode of Late Kick Live coming up tonight on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Thank you for subscribing there. If you haven't already, please do so. And also remember, we are getting so much... Good push around here for the five-star reviews that you're leaving and just the amount of downloads that we're getting. So please leave a five-star review in the podcast review section on Apple podcast. If you listen on Apple, if you don't, don't worry about it. Thank you anyway, though. Uh, It's not like your listening matters less. It's just that the Apple metrics are one that our company chooses to use. So thank you so much for doing that. I am Josh Pate. This has been Late Kick Extra. Have a great day and God bless.